Welcome to Blueprint Sounds. My name is Nathan Smith. Thanks for joining me. I've just released my new online course, Deeper Worship Lyrics, designed specifically for the worship songwriter. And to celebrate the launch, I'm sharing with you my 10 commandments of worship songwriting, 10 tips and tricks that are guaranteed to make your song better. But I wanted to have one video where we get all 10 tricks in one go. So here it is. And this also gives you one more day to access the course at a discount if you haven't already done so. So click on the link nearby to learn more. All right, here we go. Welcome to the 10 commandments of worship songwriting. We're going to start with number 10. Write a song, not a listicle. So a listicle is a blog post like, these are the top 10 foods to buy in bulk at Costco. And then they tell you about the rice and the olive oil and the peanut butter. Right? Not, not really what we want in a worship song, but let me show you how it sometimes happens. So let's take a look at a lyric that I wrote. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are holy. You are so righteous, powerful and mighty, faithful and true, always the same. Forever we praise your great name. Okay? While all of these are true about the Lord, they are hard to remember. And that's why we write down lists, right? When you make your list, you know, on your phone or whatever to go shopping, you write a list because otherwise it would be hard to remember. These are just adjectives. These are just things that describe the Lord. And again, while they're all true, they're hard to remember. So I, I, people aren't going to be humming this song and, and running through the list when they walk out the door because that's what a list is. It's hard to remember by nature. It's hard to remember because there is no storyline. There's nothing that all of these attributes are, are just disparate things. There's nothing that pulls them all together other than that they all have to do with the Lord, right? So it would have been better to have one thing that you created a storyline around and tell that story rather than tell that list. And finally, each one devalues the next. And that's sort of the same going off of the idea of the storyline is that if you had one thing that you focused on, then you would have time to let that bloom and really think about it. But because we're going from one attribute to the next so quickly, you can't remember by the end of the lyric what the first thing was. And, and so they end up being less than the sum of their parts. Here's an example of a song that does it correctly. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art and then repeat the line. But there's only one attribute there, and that's great. But great is special because it stands alone. Because we didn't muddy the waters with a bunch of different attributes, we're free to just think about the greatness of God during that chorus. We can have another song that talks about his goodness. Goodness of God is actually a great example. What's that song about? Well, it's in, it's in the chorus, and it's in the title. It's about the goodness of God. It's about one particular facet of his nature. Focus on that. Make the song about that. Write another song about his faithfulness. Write another song about his power, but don't try and put it all in one song. Okay, yesterday's commandment was write a song, not a listicle. Today, bring something new to verse two. This isn't just for worship songwriters. This is for all songwriters. This happens all the time. Let me explain where people go wrong. Let's take a look at my verse. When I was dead in sin, with debts I could not pay. The Savior from on high reached down into the fray. Okay, so we have my helplessness, and then he's coming down to help me, and then the chorus is he saved my soul four times. That's verse one. Well, look at what happens in verse two. 
I didn't have the strength to rise up from the ground until in his great love, he set me on solid ground. He saved my soul, of course, again. Did you see what happened there? These verses are interchangeable. They, one of them could be one and one of them could be two because the storyline was the exact same. My helplessness, he helped me, etc., etc. The problem is when you get to verse two, your audience is allowed to check out if you don't, if you don't have anything new. If you don't move the storyline along and you just rehashed verse one again, like, well, okay, they, they won't say that. They'll be kind. They'll watch, but they're not going to have anything roll through their imagination. You, you aren't taking them on a ride with your story. You're just back to where you started. So remember this, after the first chorus, right, we're going, you know, verse one chorus, you must give the audience a reason to keep listening. And there's a couple ways you can do that. You could give them a contrast in perspective. You could have one thought in verse one, followed up by a separate contrasting thought in verse two. Or you could move forward or backward in time or space. So, you know, maybe verse one is about before the cross, looking up to the cross. The next verse after that is with the cross behind you moving forward. And then and then the third verse is about eternity or the end of days. That would be moving forward in time. In space, you know, I've written a song about creation praising the Lord. One of them is about praising him in the heights. One of, one of the verses is about praising him in the deep. One of the verses is about praising on the plains. So your imagination from verse to verse moves from location to location. So that's another way that you can keep things moving for your audience. Or finally, this one is more challenging, but it's a verse that changes our view of the chorus. Right, your, your first verse is going to be setting up your chorus in a certain way, and so it sheds light on your chorus. But what if in your second verse, you color things in such a way that people are looking at your chorus in a new way? Now, that takes some skill, but that's really cool because then all of a sudden, you know, you did a switch on people, or people and people think, wow, I, I had the chorus one way in my head, but now, now I'm seeing it in a new light thanks to that second verse. Those are all ways that you can keep the audience listening. Because again, if you don't give them something to listen to, they will check out on your second verse. Even if they they don't want to, they will because you didn't earn it. All right, yesterday's commandment was number nine, bring something new to verse two. Today, in passive voice, you must not write. Let's talk about what passive voice is because sometimes people get confused. Let's take a look at this sentence. The dog ran to the tree. This is the normal state of affairs for the English language. This is how we structure sentences. We have a subject, the dog, which is the noun, ran, that's the verb, the action word, to the tree, the direct object. Where did the dog run to? He ran to the tree, that's the direct object. So that order of subject, verb, direct object is the normal way that we structure our sentences. But let's take a look at this mangled sentence. To the tree, the dog ran. We have the direct object first, we have the subject, the dog, and then last we have the verb. So we've we flipped the script here. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, it's confusing. Right? In the, in the first sentence, the dog ran to the tree. That's the way that we expect it. So we have a dog, we see him running, and then we see where he's running to. To the tree, the dog ran, because we flipped it, that's confusing to your listener. He's having to to do a lot of extra work, and that's the second one. It's more work for your listener to untie that knot in the English language, to hold one thing 
wait for the next thing, and then finally the verb tells you what happened. That's a, that's a lot more work. And it has the effect of clouding your meaning. Because you made more work for your listener, it, it muddies the waters, especially when you're singing this. You know, it's, it's one thing to just read it. Okay, you can go back and read it again. But if you're singing it, it's coming at you at speed. And as a listener, that's a lot to work through. And so you're thinking about the lyric when you shouldn't be thinking about the lyric. You should have already absorbed it and moved on to the next verse. So if all of those things mess up, you know, if, if there's so many bad things about flipping the script and, and talking in passive voice, why do worship leaders do it? You know, why do worship songwriters write songs that way? There's a couple of reasons. One is to get to a rhyme. And this one I, I understand because, you know, you're trying to make right rhyme with night. And so, you know, you, you move words around and all of a sudden you get to it. Um, I'm not so much opposed to that every now and then, but the second one is, is the real problem because it sounds elevated and uncommon, right? It sort of sounds like a hymn. It sounds, you know, old worldy. If you think about the way that Yoda speaks, uh, the reason why they did that in Star Wars was because it made him sound more foreign, um, more alien than a normal person. So they, they did that on purpose because it would sound elevated and uncommon. Well, the drawback for you as a songwriter for doing a worship song that way is this. If the way in which you say something overshadows your meaning, then your words created a veil between God and his people. And in your effort to revere God, you pushed him away. I see this happening a lot in more conservative circles of Christianity. Um, sometimes I think it's actually a reaction against <laughs> against shallow evangelicalism. And, and what I mean is, you know, you've got that that dancey song that's got a bunch of synths and, and it's, you know, it, it's not particularly deep. And so then in other Christian communities, they'll say, well, we were not going to do that. We're absolutely not going to do that. How can we make it sound um, important and and solid? Okay, let's make it sound old. Let's go back to the way they did it with the hymns, and and we'll just write new hymns that that sound old, and so they use this as a device, right? They'll they'll use passive voice, um, "I am saved by your love," that kind of thing, where you're flipping the script on English, and you're you're necessarily making it more difficult, but it also has the the effect of making it sound more elevated. Well, again, the problem is that then you've just made the style the thing right? You've made the style, oh, we're, we're doing a new hymn, but it's, you know, we're making it sound old. Now you're expecting that to be the thing that carries the day rather than the meaning of your words. So you have to be careful with this passive voice thing. If you make it your crutch, if you make it, you know, hey, we're doing a throwback, well, then, then you are necessarily taking away your meaning because like we've said at the beginning, you've clouded your meaning by making it harder for people to understand. And God doesn't want to be difficult to understand. He wants to be known. That's why he sent his son. My final thing I'll say is, if you need another example, which of these sentences is more powerful? You are loved by me, or I love you? right? If you're, if you're talking to your wife or if you're talking to your spouse and you say, you are loved by me, they'll probably give you a weird look and say, what are you doing? But when you say, I love you, 
the simple declaration is best. All right, yesterday's commandment number eight, in passive voice, you must not write. Today's number seven, do not tell people about your feelings. Make them feel. So let's take a look at this example. The boy laughed, happy that his practical joke had worked. Okay, that tells us what happened. Tells us that the boy laughed and it told us that he was happy. But look at this next sentence, this next paragraph, and how it takes you there rather than just describes feelings. Brian was caked in flour, looking more like a powdered donut than Tom's big brother. Tom had long since retired to the safety of the treehouse. Genetics hadn't gifted Brian a sense of humor. Okay, so why is that funny? Right? So we're, we're getting it in drips and drabs. First, we start with the, the end result that Brian is caked in flour. Oh, we find out by the end of the sentence, okay, Tom is, is the younger brother. Tom had long since retired to the safety of the treehouse. You know, it, it's, um, it doesn't tell you explicitly, but Tom ran away. <laughs> Tom did not want to be there when what happened to Brian happened. And then finally, rather than saying Tom was happy or Tom was laughing, uh, it says genetics hadn't gifted Brian a sense of humor. So Brian didn't really think this practical joke was funny. Tom obviously did, but we don't explicitly say it. We simply bring you into the story. So the first example describes someone having feelings. Tom was laughing and he was happy that his practical joke had worked. But it's more fun to be there experiencing the feelings because we're getting a sense of danger, right, that Tom has had to had to retire to the treehouse. And that idea that Brian doesn't have a sense of humor from genetics, we've learned a lot more about Brian and Tom's relationship. We've learned that Tom is a practical joker and Brian never thinks that's funny. So now that we're in that experience much more than we were in the first sentence, we have a lot more reason to experience those feelings. There's humor, there's danger. There's a lot more going on there than in the first example. All right, yesterday's commandment was number seven. Do not tell people about your feelings, make them feel. Today's number six, cliches put your audience to sleep. Do not put your audience to sleep. So what's up with cliches? Cliches are the cruise control of speech. If you've got 17 miles of 65 coming, you're just gonna hit cruise control and give your foot a rest and keep going. It's much the same when we're talking. So cliches stand in for original thoughts. And in conversation, that's fine because there's a lot going on in conversation and speech is only a part of it, right? If you could see me talking, you would see my hands moving. Maybe I'm leaning forward or leaning back. You'll see my eyes. If we're in dialogue, then your eyes are gonna move. You know, I will see your body language, um, whether or not your arms are crossed, if you're fur a brow or if you're actively listening, all of that you get in a real in-person conversation. Well, you don't get that in a song. Cliches grease the wheels of conversation. So when somebody's talking to you, they ask you a question, you weren't ready for it, you're having to respond. Well, you might throw in a cliche while you're actually thinking about, you know, thinking and talking often happen in tandem. So you're talking out exactly what you think about a thing, you're working through something as you're talking about it. And that's totally fine. And lastly, cliches are for people in the know. So within culture, there's, there's many, many subcultures, but you think about sports subculture, right? You'll hear commentators say, oh, that guy could play on Sunday. 
What does that mean? That's a cliche. Well, what it means is this football player is playing on Saturday because that's when college football plays football. But if he's saying, oh, he's good enough to go to the NFL, well, NFL games are played on Sunday. So when he says that guy could play on Sunday, okay, if you're in the know, you know what that means, right? It, it makes things go quicker and it, it's shop talk so that you know what we're talking about. If, if you know, then you know. Right. And so that's why every generation, whether it was groovy in the 60s or bodacious in the 80s or I don't know, dog water nowadays, every new generation is going to make up its own cliches. It's meant for that generation. It's supposed to sound dumb to your grandma. Right. Your grandma's not supposed to know about it because she's not, quote unquote, with it. Right. That's what cliches are for in conversation. But here's the problem in speech. I, I'm sorry, in song. Let's take a look at this worship song that I wrote. No matter what may come, you'll never let me down. You're always by my side. You are my solid ground. Do you know what this lyric is about? Right? Other than, okay, another way of saying it's the faithfulness of God. There is nothing new here. There is nothing to see here, folks, because we didn't really break any new territory. We didn't have an original thought. Nearly every one of these is a cliché. And so it's all been said before, so it doesn't, it doesn't spark any new thoughts, new imaginations in the listener, because it certainly didn't spark any new thoughts in the writer. But here's the problem. Clichés in worship songs are worse than neutral. They're worse than bathwater, because you are encouraging people to sing words to God without meaning. It didn't mean anything to you, the writer. You're just picking up what's on the shelf, to use another cliché. You're picking up something that somebody else wrote you know, years ago that maybe meant something back then, but it certainly doesn't mean anything now. And you've stuck it into a lyric and, and here we are. But again, nothing, nothing makes people think because these aren't thinking words. These are filler words that go in between original thoughts. Well, your job as a songwriter, when you're crafting a song, is to take those out and put in original thoughts. That's what we want, to bring something new to the table. All right, yesterday's commandment was number six. Cliches put your audience to sleep. Do not put your audience to sleep. Today's. Number five, use strong verbs. Cut adjectives and adverbs. So let's talk about why that is the case. Here's a simple sentence. The cat purred. All right, cat is the noun or the subject, and purred is the verb. Well, what happens if I add adjectives and adverbs? The lazy cat softly purred. Lazy is the adjective because adjectives describe nouns, and softly purred, softly is the adverb because adverbs modify or describe purred. Well, the difference between the cat purred and the lazy cat softly purred is not very much. It's not much of an improvement because we've all seen lazy cats before, and cats generally purr softly. So it didn't, it didn't really pull us into the experience. We don't have any new information. We don't you know, it, it just kind of sits there, kind of like the lazy cat. But let's take a look at another way of saying it. The cat curled its spine like a fiddlehead and hummed a low G into the hardwood floor. Hmm, that's much more interesting. What was going on there? Well, first we have the metaphor. The cat curled its spine like a fiddlehead, right? A fiddlehead has that, that curly scroll up at the top of it. And we all know that cats are really flexible. And so when you see a cat kind of roll into itself, oh, it, it kind of looks like a fiddlehead. Next, we have strong verbs. 
curled, that's pretty good, and hummed a low G into the hardwood floor, hummed rather than purred. Well, that's interesting because we don't think of the cat as singing, but in this sense, it is singing. Oh, and guess what? The verb that I had, the hummed a low G, is kind of um, related to a fiddlehead that's this sort of a musical thing happening here. So this is a musical cat. Right, so we're getting all of this extra information. We're we're more in the room next to the singing cat than we were before. Purred softly, not doing much for me. This sentence, much more inside the room, in the experience of the cat. Instead of telling you that the cat is lazy, I brought the cat in and he showed you how lazy he is. That's what we want as writers, and we use metaphor and strong verbs to get there. Adjectives and adverbs, they don't quite do it. You, you would have been better off picking a better verb and using better imagery than filling your song with adjectives and adverbs. Does that mean you can never use one? No, but when you use one, if you use them sparingly, it makes them more powerful. If you pack them in, they dilute your meaning. All right, yesterday's commandment, number five, use strong verbs and cut adjectives and adverbs. Today's commandment, number four, if you coddle a pet lyric, your song will suffer. So let's talk about what a pet lyric is. Here's a lyric I wrote. I will choose to run the race upon this narrow road, and I cannot be bought because I am already sold. Hmm. What's the problem there? Well, we want to tell a story in our lyric. We want to take the listener through something so that in their imagination, a storyline is unfolding. Look at my setup. I will choose to run the race upon this narrow road. Okay, so we have a race, we have a road. The verse would lead you to believe that we're going to keep talking about races and roads and and et cetera, et cetera. But look what I did. And I cannot be bought because I am already sold. Well, that's a cute turn of a phrase, but it has nothing to do with the storyline that I started with. We were talking about races and roads, and then all of a sudden we're talking about, talking about bought and sold. I just gave you whiplash because, as it turns out, I must have liked this last lyric too much to let it go. I should have kept up the idea of the, the narrow road and the race. I should have enlarged that imagery. Instead, I jumped ship, and I... I had this totally unrelated thought, but I thought it was so cute that I left it in. That's the problem is that pet lyrics draw attention to themselves, right? They're like, oh, <clears throat> did you see how clever I was just then? I'm like, yeah, but, but it, didn't, it didn't serve the song. It didn't move your storyline forward. Oh, but it was really clever. Well, it doesn't matter. The part, and that is the, the pet lyric, detracts from the whole. Your verse would have been much stronger if you would have kept on your narrow road idea rather than going to a pet lyric. So now, now it, it has this weird thing where the first part of your lyric was basically just a reason to rhyme with your pet lyric. It, it, was, a, it was a bad setup. And now we just expect everybody to be interested in your cute pet lyric. So if at any point you wrote a lyric and you say, oh, that was so clever what I just did, stop dead in your tracks, pride comes before a fall, and think to yourself, did I actually make this lyric better? Did it make sense? Did I stay with my metaphor or did I jump ship to go and find this cute lyric that I really liked and I like it so much that I can't get rid of it? 
right? If there's a lyric that you can't get rid of because you think it's so good, it's probably the thing that's messing up your song. Yesterday's commandment, number four, if you coddle a pet lyric, your song will suffer. Today's, number three, be deep, not puffed up. Fancy theological words go down like whole cabbages. Let's explain. So here I have a lyric that I kind of wrote in that new hymn style. Sins now atoned, you reign enthroned upon our highest praise. Now justified, then glorified, we'll worship all our days. What's the problem here? Well, okay, go ahead. Define the words atoned, justified, and glorified. I'll wait. But remember, meanwhile, there is another verse coming. That's the problem with big theological words, ones that you would pull out of a commentary, is that they're, they're so big, they're so packed full of meaning, people can write whole books about what it means to be justified or glorified, and, and scholars disagree. You're going to put three of them in one lyric and then expect people not to be scratching their heads thinking about what you just said while you move on to the next one? That's not helpful. This song guarantees your audience will observe. They're going to watch it happen, but they're not going to participate. All right, do not aim for the head. Aim for the heart. The way that I would think of it is like, imagine that there's a guy who's going to propose to his girlfriend. He's got the ring. He's going to take her out to a nice restaurant. They're going to go walk on the boardwalk, and he's going to get down on one knee. He's planned out the whole evening. Well, the restaurant... And the meal that they're going to have is a portion of what they're going to do. It's a means to an end. The end is, I want that ring on her finger. I want to marry her. Well, what if the chef says, you know, I'm tired of um, coddling my, my customers by cutting up the food and cooking it and presenting it nicely on a plate. Today, we're going to give them a whole cabbage. We're going to work out their jaw so they really get, you know, they're going to they're gonna do the work this time. And so the guy orders, you know, filet mignon and out comes a whole cabbage and, and he and his girlfriend are expected to, to chew that and that's their meal. Well, would he be pleased? No, no, he would not be pleased because he paid the money for the chef to do the work. The chef's supposed to cut it up. The chef's supposed to cook it. This is just a portion of their night together is the meal. A song is like that. A song is a means to an end. So if you give people a dense song like this with atonement and justification and glorification, all these huge thoughts and big words, and you're like, all right, now you do the chewing. Well, again, that's not helpful because the point was not to think about the words atonement, justification, and glorification. The, the point was that everyone comes to meet with God, right? If you want to read a commentary, well, then read a commentary. And if you want to write a commentary, write a commentary. But if you want to write a song for people to sing and facilitate them meeting with the Lord, well, then write a simple song. That's not to say that you can never use one of those words, but do not pack your song with big words like that and then pat yourself on the back that you were so deep and that you gave them something to really chew on. No, no, no. You would have been better off writing a simple song that people could participate with rather than just observing it. All right, yesterday's commandment, be deep, not puffed up. Fancy theological words go down like whole cabbages. That brings us to number two for today. Save the important words of your chorus for your chorus. Let's take a look at this verse and chorus. The blood ran down upon his face, then grace upon my sin. All my failures now are past since grace has entered in. 
and then the chorus, how amazing is his grace, eight times. Okay, well, I'm breaking some of my other rules, you know, passive voice and whatnot, but the big one in this case is the overuse of the word grace. If my verse is about grace and then my chorus is about grace, right? The chorus is the distillation of your whole song. It's your one big thought. It's the thing that you want people to remember. Plus, it's the thing that you're going to be singing multiple times. Well, now your word grace isn't as special because you overused it in your verse. And that also means that the chorus is going to get old. Like we said, you're probably going to sing your chorus three times. How amazing is his grace? Well, if every verse has grace in it, then grace isn't as special as it used to be. You would be better off finding other words and then saving that most special word grace just for your chorus so that you can repeat it without people tiring of it. All right, yesterday's commandment, number two, save the important words of your chorus for your chorus. That brings us to commandment number one, we would all rather behold God's face than behold your past. Remember that when we're writing a worship song for a bunch of people, a corporate worship song, that it should probably have a corporate feel and that it doesn't necessarily have to be your processing, right? We don't find people's processing very interesting. If you want to testify, then we'll give your testimony and, and that would be wonderful. But we can't handle a huge diet of that every Sunday of one person's experience because then we just end up watching that one person's experience. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't write about that. It means that you shouldn't make that all that we talk about. So let's take a look at worship song topics that don't center on you. First one's a great one. Discover a new aspect of God's character or talk about a new facet of God's character in a new way. There's so many things about God, his loving kindness, his glory, his majesty, his faithfulness, you know, the, the fact that he's a warrior. All of that could be written about, and it doesn't require talking about you. Fantastic. Another thing that you could do is sing about two seemingly opposing things that are both true. So God is father to us, but he's also mother to us because the idea of mother and father, well, both mother and father are made in God's image. So God is at one point warrior-like, majestic, powerful, and he's also nurturing and a giver, and he takes care of us. Well, you could write a song about those two things. Another way to do it is you could move forward in time. We've talked about this in other commandments, but if you were to start before the cross, after the cross, eternity in each of your verses, you're moving forward in time. You could change locations from verse to verse. So in a song that I wrote about all creation giving God glory, in the first verse, we're worshiping him in the heights. In the second verse, we worship him in the deep. In the third verse, we worship him on the plains. So every time the verse comes up, a new verse, we change locations and people suddenly have something new in their imagination. And again, doesn't rely on me because we're talking about creation, not my own experience. And lastly, give a history lesson of God's victories. So you'll see this in the Psalms where they will walk through the victories of God, the battles that he fought. You know, he threw down the kings of Bashan and then everybody responds, his loving kindness is everlasting. So we're just giving, we're giving everybody, not just ourselves, but you know, the, the spiritual realm, we're saying, hey, these are all the things that God did. And in fact, that was one of the directives that God said, hey, Israelites, as you go about and as I do these wonders in 
Canaan, make sure that you make altars and then you tell your children about everything that I did. So his commandment was remind your kids what happened here and here and here. Give them a history lesson about my victories. Well, you could do the same thing in a song. And again, it doesn't require you. We would all rather behold God's face than your past. Hey, thanks for watching. And remember, there's much more in my full course, Deeper Worship Lyrics. So click on the link nearby to get access. God bless and goodbye.